Now the time of the service is for the message, and I am very uh, thankful that we have with us today David Lynn, who is the superintendent of the Northeast District of the Christian, Christian and Missionary Alliance, and uh, Dave has come with some kind words for us. Morning. Welcome. Good morning. It's great to be with you. Um, I'll introduce my friends in just a moment, but I wanted to say I've known about this church and prayed about you and for you many times over the years. We first came up to this district in 1991. My wife Barbara and I uh, ministered in Rochester for 18 years, and so I've interacted with your pastors and prayed for you. Also, you should know that in a district office, every single day, we stop whatever we're doing. We move away from all of the hubbub and the computers and the desks and all of that. We have a devotional time, and we pray, not just for things that we've known about, but we pray for every single church and every single worker in this district. So we've paid, prayed for you many times, and I just want you to know that. Uh, we're on the same team here, even if this is the first time you've uh, gotten a chance to hear from me. Uh, I've been a pastor uh, for more than 30 years, Uh, began in church planting in uh, Yorba Linda, California, Uh, then we spent eight years in Pearl River, New York, right over the hill from Nyack College. After that, it was 18 years in Rochester where we raised our family, and then was very surprised to find myself for five years in uh, Morgantown, West Virginia, and then once again, surprised to be back here with you. I've got an unbroken track record of never knowing where the Lord's going to send me next. Um, I am uh, your district superintendent. Uh, let me tell you just really quick what that means. Here's four things I do. I, I work every day to encourage pastors and churches. Do you think pastors and churches need encouragement? <laughs> I think so. Uh, I'm also a gatekeeper. My name is on every licensed worker's credentials, Um, I also credential the churches, whether they're actually churches or not yet. Some are too small. Uh, Others don't agree with the Alliance General Doctrine stuff, so I watch over that. I'm also a problem solver. Churches don't have problems, do they? No. Well, yeah, so I do that too. And also kingdom building, huge thing. Where does God want this district to go? Please be praying about that. Think, okay, we're here. We're in a crucial spot, and by the way, I just have to say, I think this church is poised for a remarkable impact. Um, It's had a tremendous impact so far, but this area is moving forward, and you're moving forward with it, and I think you really need to be praying. Lord, tell us what this future is. Open the doors that no one can shut, Lord. Show us where we're going. I think there's tremendous potential here, and I'm eager to be part of... uh, encouraging the kingdom building in this place. With me is my wife, Barbara. Um, You should stand so people on that side can see you. There you go. And uh, also with me is our ministry specialist, Sally Fry, who works with me in district office. Uh, Sally was in our church in Morgantown, West Virginia, and uh, the Lord sort of brought our paths together. She was looking for an opportunity to move from Uh, secular employment at the university to ministry stuff and uh, so here she is and she does basically four things Uh, she does business management Um, she does our education ministries 
She helps me with human resources things and then also is our uh, point woman for women's ministry. So uh, if you're a woman in ministry at any level and you just make sure you go say hi to Sally uh, before uh, the day slips away. Main reason I'm here is that I always go when a church is in transition and you've had a bit of a shock. Uh, You had a pastor, now you don't have a pastor. Or at least you had two and now you have one. And I'm here to help the board with that, to work their way through the process. One of my jobs is helping the board figure out where the church is headed, and then uh, I try to find people who fit that so that there's a good match, and we're going to work together on that. Um, And, you know, I think that when you've had a shock like just suddenly losing a pastoral family like this, it's hard to figure out exactly what to do. And here's what you do. You love them. Okay? Figure it out. Don't pry. This had to happen. I'm just telling you. But uh, they've loved you. Make sure you love them back. Okay, because they're in a tough transition also. Um, Yeah, okay, that's good. That's good enough to start. Uh, I'm going to be in Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 through 29, and I'm pretty sure I didn't tell anyone in advance. Uh, So so, uh, get out your Kindle or your Nook or your whatever you got. Some of you using paper Bibles, that's fine too. I'm still using mine because it it scares people. Look at that thing. Galatians chapter 3, my subject is all one in Christ Jesus. What is the church? What are we supposed to be doing? You know, we've just recently seen some images, and if you haven't seen them, they're out there, of a 60-year-old man who has concluded that he should live as a woman. He's rich, he's got tremendous personal power and influence and uh, fame, he's very accomplished, he was uh, an Olympian and did very well, and he's just changed his mind about how he wants to live. We're also reading stories of children and teens choosing to live as the other sex. Now, we've all got opinions about, you know, what we think about that. Um, you know, we've all got our analysis and there's a lot of biblical things to think about where that is. But here's the question I want to ask. What's going on in their souls? Because this is a radical step, don't you think? It's, a, it's almost a desperate step. And I'm seeing people yearning, reaching, trying to find something that they haven't been able to find. You know, there's also a statistic that the suicide rate for people who've undergone sex reassignment is amazingly high. And that means that that bold move to find something is not working out the way that they hoped. We've also been shocked to hear stuff that's happening in the news that a, a confused, racist, hateful man went into the prayer meeting of one of America's premier African-American churches and just tried to shoot as many people as possible. Think about what's happening in his headspace. Somewhere along the way, he thought, doing a murderous, evil, racist act is going to be the highest thing I do in my life. Wow. How did he get to that place? We've also watched again and again and again all sorts of of urban upset going on. And uh, there's different circumstances in each case. Uh, Usually ends 
up with a black man dying, it seems like. And then there's protests, and sometimes there's fires, there's peaceful things, there's religious vigils, and all this kind of stuff. There's one particular sign that sticks in my head, and there's been lots of slogans floated, but it says, Black Lives Matter. And I'm just looking at that and thinking of all the, all the appeals that people are making to pay attention to what's happening in their lives. And I'm just saying, people are looking they're yearning. They're seeking something. And, and it's almost like come to the boiling point where they just have to scream it out. And they're asking questions. Does my life matter? Well, I've compiled over the years a list of summary crucial questions that everybody wrestles with. Absolutely everyone does. This isn't all the questions that you could ask, but it helps me just summarize them so I can figure out what are people trying to do in their lives. Now, by the way, almost nobody gets up and says, here's my five questions, this is what I'm trying to do today. But it underlines everything that we do. Number one, does anybody love me? Anybody. People are crying out for that. How about this one? Does anyone see my pain? Well, if you've lived a life with no pain, then please write the book, because the rest of us want to do it also. Number three, are God and church for real? Everybody wants to know. And by the way, when we're not real, they scream, right? Look at you, you're a fake. Why do they even think that? Because they want to know. Are God in church for real? Fourthly, everybody wants to know, does my life matter? Am I just like a blob, you know, just a speck? Or is there some significance to my being here on planet Earth? And then the fifth thing, what will become of me? What's going to happen? I mean, there's a, there's a this life question. You know, if I make this decision, it's going to have that outcome. Is it going to be okay? Am I going to do all right? And then there's the question about what becomes of me after I pass the door of death? And even if people don't want to talk about it all that much, they are thinking about it. But I'm just watching all this and I'm just telling you, I'm seeing these questions and similar ones screaming out of people's souls. They want to know and they're, they're doing desperate things to try to find the answers. Well, let's talk about the answer. Why are they doing that? The reason they're doing that is because the Church of Christ, this thing that we're doing right here uh, with people that you know and uh, all the stuff that's going on inside your church where it's not exactly what you want for it to be, this thing is God's answer to the yearning in people's souls. This is where they find the answer. There's no other institution on the face of the earth that's capable of giving the answer. So... Think of what's at stake with what you're doing here. If we define church as the place where I get free coffee, half a donut, and some time with my friends, you're not going to answer this yearning, are you? If we define it as a rigid set of formal observances or a great place to rock out or 
a fishing pond for marriage or any other human goal. If that's the main thing you're thinking, it's not going to answer the needs of your soul or the needs of the souls of other people. There is no human definition that's going to work. You know, I think that's one of the reasons why so many people are rejecting church right now. And by the way, that's a pretty tough cut. Take that to your prayer room. Because they've come and they're seeing primarily human stuff going on and they're desperate for the answers and they can't find them. So they wander off and do some other desperate thing. Well, what is Christ's church? It is a spiritual body of believers. It's a network of souls connected at the deepest inward level with each other and with God. And the Apostle Paul had a lot to say about it. And I just want to sample one section here in Galatians chapter 3, beginning with verse 23, answering the question, what exactly is God doing in building his church? Paul writes, But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. There was a time before the law of God was given, and Paul's concerning himself, however, with the impact of the giving of the law on humanity. What was the impact of that? We were all guided by the law the way ancient Greek and Roman schoolmasters kept boys on the right road in life. You might not be familiar with this in any way. I'll explain it really short. Um, what the Bible says is that the law was given to be like a schoolmaster, a tutor to us, but it was a particular kind of tutor. In Greek and Roman culture, those who were wealthy would hire a person who was not the, their child's teacher, but that was hired to make sure the child went to school, did the lessons, and didn't wander off. So if the child starts wandering off on his or her way to the school, the schoolmaster, the tutor, had a stick. Whack, whack, no, go this way. Whack, don't go that way, go this way. And kept them on the right road. That's, that was the concept. Um, so the law, if that's what the law did, it didn't fix our basic problems. It was outside us. It's the stick that hits us. You know what it does? It makes our sin problem clearer. It explains it. We have words now that describe our failings. But you see, whether under the law, before it was given, or under the law, it was given in Israel, the deepest problems of the human soul are not dealt with. The biggest questions are not answered. The chance for anybody to get the right answer to these questions apart from Christ is nil. It's zero. There's no hope. You're not going to answer these questions in the right way with anything other than Christ. And so what happens is people keep putting false substitutes in that place, one right after the next. And what happens? Confusion, damage, and ultimately destruction is what comes to pass. That's why God gave this tutor to keep whacking us in the right direction. Verses 24 through 26. Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. What, what this is saying is that virtually everything in world history, and he uses the law as one example of this, is designed to guide us, to whack us, in the correct direction, which is toward faith in Christ. And what happens when we become believers in Christ? We become true sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father. That's what God's heading for. 
That's God's pushing everyone in the direction toward becoming children of God. That's what he's doing. And so um, the church is that place, and it's the only place where that can happen. You'll see that it's... Uh, that Uh, Paul uses the term sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Very important to understand what he's saying there. In Greek and Roman culture, there was the rule of primogeniture in um, the giving of a legacy. You become the heir of your family fortune and power. And guess who got that? Only the firstborn son. And do you understand what that means? It means most of the boys and none of the girls ever got it. And yet, what does it say about us as children of God? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, every single one, all of the wealth, all of the privilege, all of the blessing becomes the possession of every single believer in Jesus Christ. Stop a moment and say amen. You can say it. God had you in mind like a rose trampled on the ground. You took the fall and thought of me above all. So the fact that we're in a local church, you know, uh, somebody asked me this, I used this phrase before, you know, look at us, we're a bunch of bipeds in a building. If we were all dogs, we'd be quadrupeds in a building. And in certain brands of theology being the gathered redemptive community is what they're all about they hardly talk about God and I'll just tell you being bipeds in a building is the least important thing about us being sons and daughters of the living God that's important that's important and it's not limited to the walls that we have here what did Paul say about this for all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ you know what that means we're totally wrapped in him We're totally wrapped. Nothing hanging out. Um, Totally wrapped. Well, what happens when we're clothed with Christ? We experience the demotion of human factors. And we're going to talk about this. And what it means is human factors are not erased, are they? We're still men, women. We still have a certain racial birth or whatever. And by the way, there was a really great uh, poet artist at annual council this year I forget the guy's name, but he did performance poetry. And one of the, thing, one of the points he was trying to make is that um, God doesn't do away with races so that there are no races. God saves every race, you see. And that's a different thing, but, but very important to understand what that means. Paul gave a list of things that without Christ, they divide us. And he wrote in verse 28a, the first one, he says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, and the word Greek meant non-Jews in that context. Now, there's at least three layers to that kind of human distinction. Let's unfold them. First of all, Israelites became a separate race with Abraham because God set up a rule, and he said, don't intermarry. You stick with yourselves and do not connect uh, with the other races around you. And so Israel became a distinct race. Part of what happened when they did that was they started to hate the other races. And guess what? The other races started to hate them. And, and are we seeing that today? Anybody read the newspapers? There's a lot of hate going around. Um, but you see, uh, it is God's glory that who's going to be in heaven? Scripture says point blank that 
We don't all become the same color or the same race, but God saves everyone and fills heaven with worshipers who look like this, every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So when we're worshiping God in eternity, guess what? They'll be, they'll be all color people, all different races, but guess what? That will not be our defining characteristic. What's our defining characteristic? Clothed with Christ. Clothed with Christ. I think the world had a privileged opportunity to see the demotion of the race factor as this church in Charleston, South Carolina reacted to this murder. It's hard for me to talk about. This is a historic church. This is a church that began during the slave era and has had to work its way through all the eras in American history to stay on track and to continue to honor God. And they held a church service the Sunday after. Okay? And guess what that church service was about? It's about Jesus. It was about forgiveness. It was about God. It wasn't about race and the sorrow and the anger and all of those things which are perfectly valid. But what they wanted to say was all of that human stuff is less important than Jesus. God bless them. They led their whole city in this march. Thousands of people moving through the city, all different colors, saying, we're not going to let this be about race. Now, obviously, for that one twisted guy, it was about race. He was trying to do as much hateful damage as he possibly could, and he will have his reward. God will give it to him. But race as a distinction in Christ is no longer the key thing about us. There's a second layer to this distinction about uh, being Jew and Greek is that God commanded Israel to separate their religious practices from all others. And so, so religion, as it's practiced by human beings, is another layer. What had happened by the time of Jesus is that the Jewish religion had lost its center It had lost its reason for being. And honestly, it had become like the religions and the nations around it. It was really about the people and their judgments rather than about God who towers over all of those things. Of course, every culture has religious traditions by which mankind tries to reach God. To reach God. How's that working? It's really not. You know, churches can do this too. It's a little bit confusing. I use the term churchianity. We're about the church itself. And I'll just tell you honestly, I'm not very religious, and I think churchianity is boring. Let's go and hang out in church, and we'll eat and talk about stuff. Well, I could do that somewhere else. I don't need to go to church for that. Do you? No, you don't. Um, Even such a large and effective church in the New Testament as Ephesus struggled because they, came, they became about themselves. And you know what Jesus said? Go back to your first love or I'm going to remove your right to be a church of Jesus Christ. That's how much God cares about that. So that layer of being religious is uh, just as false, even though it looks better on the outside, as other distinctions that we use to define ourselves I'm sorry about my my nose running. Part of it is emotion, because 
I think these are the most important things in the whole universe, so I get emotional. Also, I'm allergic to everything, so, so it, including myself. I, that's what I heard from my doctor. One of the things that's happening right now is that Westerners have trouble understanding the religious motivations of Islamic terrorists, and people keep saying, oh, it's not religious, it's not religious, it's not... Really? They say it's religious. They're calling out God's name while they're performing acts of terror. I'm not talking about Islam as a whole. I'm just talking about those who are committing these terroristic acts. Um, But it's amazing. They seem not only willing, but also eager to lay their lives down for their religion. And that's a pretty amazing thing. Westerners are having trouble crunching that because we're having trouble getting out of bed for church. And then when we go, the most common complaint is what I did or did not like about the music. Can we be done with that now? (laughs) Can we do something more important than that? But you see, uh, Islam believes that mankind's basically good. Did you know that? They believe that any person can on any day wake up and follow all of the laws of Allah. We do not believe that. That is a a heresy in Christianity called Pelagianism. You are not basically good. You are broken. You're busted. And, And God needs to fix you inwardly. But that's what they believe. And that's why they don't need a savior. Did you ever wonder? They don't have a savior because they don't think they need one. It's all about obedience on a day-to-day basis and that's one of the reasons why they are offended when we say that their prophet Yeshua Jesus is the savior because they accept him as a teacher because from their point of view all you need to do is learn the laws and do them so they don't well he's not a savior we don't need a savior and they fight against that with great zeal their emphasis is on learning and that's why they have prophets, teachers, imams. That's why the extremist group in Afghanistan whose name is the Taliban. Do you know what the word Taliban means? It means students. Those are some tough students, I have to say. I mean, uh, uh, But that's their whole concept. And we struggle with that. And so the frequent violence that comes from them is partly the result of them seeking ultimacy because what they've done is they've taken their religion and put it in the place where God's supposed to be and it's not really working that great. Because guess what? They don't have anything to do with their guilt. There's no way to take care of it. They can't put their sin away. They can't become free. They're stuck, they're stuck, they're stuck and they keep ramping up their attempts to fix it. So if somebody steals something, they chop their hand off. If someone commits adultery, they stone them to death. If someone does the wrong thing, they throw them off a building. They're looking for ultimacy, and guess what? It's just getting more and more desperate, and they're not finding it. They're not finding it. There's a third layer uh, to the idea that there's neither Jew nor Greek, and that's national identity. In a fallen world, people slide into the thought that their political nation is the best, right? It provides their primary identity, whether you're English, French, American, Zimbabwean, Afghan, or whatever. And I've already said, in the end, none of that's going to matter where you were born politically. But it becomes a national identity thing. This is who I am. A number of years ago, my wife and I traveled to France to minister in the International Church in Toulouse for a couple of weeks. It was sort of a pastoral swap kind of a deal. And we learned that simply being French 
is very important to the French people. How many of you have been in Aldi's? Well, discount store. Anyway, and pick any grocery store that you like. Yeah, Aldi's is good. They have an Aldi's and also like an Aldi's clone there. So we were staying near one of those and we went to get some food and found out one entire wall of this grocery store is a refrigerator case for cheese. <laughs> I th- I'm thinking, cheese, this is important. <laughs> And by the way, they do have better cheese than us. <laughs> and it, it's not allowed even to be sent here. Um, but at any rate, uh, then we went to dinner. You know, my wife and I were, you know, we're experiencing jet lag. And we thought, well, we have a meal. So we show up at 5.30, the time we normally do. We get there. The restaurants are all locked. And they say, well, this will open at 1,900 hours. And we're like, let's see, 1,900. We subtract 12. That's 7 p.m., we're like, we're hungry now. Well, see, here's the interesting thing. In France, you do not go to dinner in order to get that out of the way and then do something else. Going to dinner is what you're doing that evening, and it's a wonderful experience. You just got to give yourself over to it. It's all timed. You know, certain things arrive at your table at certain times and what have you. And, and this is crucial to where their heads are at and if you mess with it they get mad because they feel like you're messing with their identity you know what that's not evil there are elements of culture that will be in heaven once they are cleansed of the taint of sin and there will be people that we will say well those are French people right every tribe, tongue, people, nation uh, those are Zimbabwean people. That's what we're going to see that. But it's crucial to understand that all of this stuff gets shoved down by our being clothed in Christ. Here's a phrase that was much misunderstood in the past and is now. Galatians 3.28, B, there is neither slave nor free man. First of all, the word man is inserted in the text by the translators. But this is a mind blower. What Paul is saying is even the crucial attribute of liberty is subsumed in importance to being free in Christ. And and I think this is something that's been misunderstood. People say the Bible approves of slavery. It does not. It, It speaks about it as a reality in a fallen world. But it also says, understand this, whether you're slave or free, that's not the most important thing. The most important thing is being in God's family being connected together. There were many African slaves in early America who discovered that kind of freedom. They never got earthly freedom, most of them. But many of them found freedom in Christ. Praise God. Praise God. And I am ashamed that the church sometimes supported the institution of slavery. And many people were passive about not overwhelming it because God hates it. God hates it. The idea that people would be used like a a meaningless tool, worn out, destroyed, and discarded. God hates this, and always did. And I think America was very confused about this. But even this kind of burdensome bondage cannot trump the new identity of any believer. You know what else goes with that? The whole slave and free thing? Social position. What do you think God thinks about our ideas of social position, which we relentlessly pursue? Looks. You pretty enough? 
You handsome enough? You buff enough? Smarts. Educational attainment. Fame. Just make a list. Even birth. We're not monarchists, but we even think some people are like born famous, you know. Um, We have political families like that that just keep producing new leaders. All of this stuff, all of this stuff gets shoved down by our coming to Christ. And finally, he says this, there is neither male nor female. Very interesting. What does that mean? Obviously, there's differences in biological sexes. I think it goes right down to the spirit of a person. When God creates you, he creates you body, soul, mind, and spirit. It's all harmonious. It can get messed up by sin, but it's not that confusing. God made them male and female. So what does it mean when the Bible says there's no longer male or female? Well, it's crucial to understand that in Christ, what is the status of men and women? It is said that we are fellow heirs of the grace of life. Fellow heirs, no distinction. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. This is, this is absolutely crucial for us to understand. By the way, it is amusing when like Time Magazine puts up a cover that says that they've discovered differences between men and women. Like, wow, you found that out. <laughs> wow. What will we discover next? <laughs> I wonder if they were like in an edit, edit meeting saying, you know, we've got a light week. What can we report on? You know? <laughs> Got to put something up there. Let me say this. I don't believe the Bible-believing church in America has done very well with women being fellow heirs of the grace of life. I think in our zeal to uphold proper complementary roles, we have also communicated something, sometimes on purpose, sometimes inadvertently, that women are worth less. Not worthless, just less. And one of the ways that you can see that is that if women have all the gifts, and that's what it says in the Bible, and when you do personality tests about natural abilities, they have all the same personality abilities that that men have. We don't have very many paths to ministry for women. Think, okay, that's kind of built in. We, We haven't really doped this out yet. And I'm your district superintendent. People ask me, what are we going to do to grow? Because our district is, let me just lay it completely on the line, minus 19 churches since I came here in 1991. And my feeling is that we cannot afford to have a single person who's not using his or her gifts for Christ. We cannot afford that. We need to have all hands on deck. And we will observe the complementary relationship of men and women in the home and in the church. But we're not even close to getting it right. Not yet. But think and pray about that. There's no longer male nor female. Why? For you are all one in Christ Jesus. All the basis for separation, conflict, and distinction has been erased. So what's our true identity? We are beloved, blessed children of God by faith in Christ. That means that as people come and go, in this case you have a pastoral family who is moving to whatever God has for them in the future, that we are still 100% connected. You do not have to get to know somebody in Christ 
in order to be 100% connected with them because it's in your spirit. God did it. You get to know them just to find out what they're like and how God made them. In the world, our friendships are by connection. Yeah, I mean, I like this, I like that, that's why we're friends. In the church, that's not what it is. Our connection is built in at the deepest level of our insides by the Holy Spirit of God. Membership in God's family, what we're doing right here, it's the goal to which all history is moving. God's invisible hand is moving it that way. That means that no amount of attention to racial, religious, national, social, or biological identity can ever satisfy the human soul. This is what I'm about. I'm a woman. I'm a man. I'm American. I'm French. You know, none of this, none of this stuff can possibly satisfy the human soul. And attempts to answer these huge questions are doomed to failure. And we're the only entity that can, can answer them. So what should we do? Go give the answers. Go give the answers. Don't stop until Christ come back. And if we don't, guess what keeps happening? People who can't find the answers keep picking up things which do not belong and putting them right where God's supposed to be in their lives. And what happens? It's a mess. It's a mess all over the world. So people are asking, does anybody love me? What are you going to do about that? Go love them in Jesus' name. That includes the enemies. That's what Jesus said. Tell them that God loves them better than any human can be. People are asking, does anyone see my pain? Go share it with them. This is way beyond the donuts, right? So entering people's lives. Bear the burden with them. Let them know that God sees. Does anyone see my pain? There's actually a name for God in the Old Testament that just means Jehovah sees. Yahweh sees. God sees. You are not alone. Thirdly, are God in church for real? First of all, best way to answer that, be real for crying out loud. Tell God you don't want even a scintilla of fake anything in your life and drive it out of your church. If you're doing something just because you always did it, that's probably fake. Do it because it's what God wants, because you know it and you're being intentional and you're being on purpose in the Spirit of God. Why do we do that? Because God sent us as one of the ways that people taste and see that the Lord is good. When people enter into your fellowship, they should say, God is here. God is here. They might not understand it, but they're sensing it at a deep level in their souls because God has taught them something about himself by general revelation. Fourth thing, people are asking, does my life matter? Let's go give the answer. Doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. Your life matters to God. And because it matters to God, it matters to me. And make sure you've dealt with that inequality thing in your heart. Because people can smell it if you don't think you're the same as them. And before God, you are the same as them. In the earthly sense, we've got all different variations. And God's saying, that stuff really doesn't matter. What matters is our spiritual need is the same. Every last one of us. You know why? Because apart from Christ, here's our three key characteristics. Number one, we're ignorant. Secondly, we are morally naked. We have no excuse 
for our moral failings. And thirdly, we're spiritually dead. We don't respond to God. That's, that's what makes us the same with absolutely everyone. And Christ is the only answer to those things. And fifthly, what will become of me? Apart from Christ, whatever success people may have on this earth, once you pass the door of death, if you don't know Christ, the outcome's not good. And even in this life, is, is it really true that moving to Florida and getting the early bird special is the best thing that you can do with, you know, that's the consummation, you know. Really? No, God gives us a reason to live. And blessing and satisfaction and joy are in Christ. And they start in this life and they go on forever. So, God gave his church the answers. Let's go give them every way that we can. People are screaming out for them. So, because this is a swing around kind of seating arrangement, I want you to look me in the eye. I want to speak a word to you. Go. And over here in the middle, so I can look you in the eye, it's the same word to all of us. Go. And you, you also, take the answers. Go. Father, we have an immense burden. We, it's hard to even appreciate how significant it is. And I pray, Father, that you'd speak to us about where we're at, the people that we know, the situations that we have, and may we have a spiritual sensitivity to the doors that you're opening for us. Let it be that we'll see the way that you see, Lord, that we'll see us all, every last person, as full of need, eager, and even desperate to find the answers to these crucial questions of life. And Lord, may we see that we have been privileged through Christ Jesus to know the answers. And I pray that we'd give them. In Jesus' name, amen.